Part Two, Chapter One of the Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part Two, Chapter One, in the Boy Scouts Camp. Night. Night in Aldwych, in the centre of that vast tract of unreclaimed prairie, known to Londoners as the Aldwych site, there shone feebly, seeming almost to emphasize the darkness and desolation of the scene, a single light. It was the campfire of the Boy Scouts. The night was raw and windy. A fine rain had been falling for some hours. The date of September the first. For just a month England had been in the grip of the invaders. The coloured section of the hostile force had either reached its home by now, or was well on its way. The public had seen it go with a certain regret. Not since the visit of the Shah had such an attractive topic of conversation been afforded them. Several comic journalists had built up a reputation, and a large price per thousand words, on the king of Baligala alone. Theatres had benefited by the index of a large, new, unsophisticated public. A piece at the Waldorf Theatre had run for a whole fortnight, and the merry widow had taken on a new lease of life. Selfridges, abandoning its policy of caution, had advertised to the extent of a quarter of a column in two weekly papers. Now the young Turks were back at school in Constantinople, shuffling their feet and throwing ink pellets at one another. Rasuli, home again in the old mountains, was working up the kidnapping business, which had fallen off sadly in his absence under the charge of an incompetent locum tenens. And the Chinese, the Baligalans, and the troops of the Mad Mullah were enduring the miseries of seasickness out in mid-ocean. The Swiss army had also gone home, in order to be in time for the winter hotel season. There only remained the Germans, the Russians, and the troops of Monaco. In the camp of the Boy Scouts a vast activity prevailed. Few of London's millions realize how tremendous and far-reaching an association the Boy Scouts are. It will be news to the man in the street to learn that, with the possible exception of the Black Hand, the Scouts are perhaps the most carefully organized secret society in the world. Their ramifications extend through the length and breadth of England. The boys you see parading the streets with hockey-sticks are but a small section, the aristocrats of the society. Every boy in England, and many a man, is in the pay of the association. Their funds are practically unlimited. By the oath of initiation, which he takes on joining, every boy is compelled to pay into the common coffers a percentage of his pocket-money or his salary. When you drop his weekly three-and-sixpence into the hand of your office-boy on Saturday— Possibly you fancy he takes it home to mother. He doesn't. He spend two and six on woodbines. The other shilling goes to the treasury of the Boy Scouts. When you visit your nephew at Eton, and tip him five pounds or whatever it is, does he spend it at the sock shop? Apparently, yes. In reality, a quarter reaches the common fund. Take another case to show the Boy Scouts' power. You are a city merchant, and arriving at the office one morning in a bad temper, you proceed to cure yourself by taking it out of the office boy. 
He says nothing, apparently does nothing, but that evening, as you are going home in the tube, a burly working man treads heavily on your gouty foot. In Ladbroke Grove, a passing hansom splashes you with mud. Reaching home, you find that the cat has been at the cold chicken, and the butler has given notice. You do not connect these things, but they are all alike the result of your unjust behavior to your office boy in the morning. Or, meeting a ragged little match-seller, you pat his head and give him sixpence. Next day, an anonymous present of champagne arrives at your address. Terrible in their wrath, the Boy Scouts never forget kindness. The whistle of a striped iguanodon sounded softly in the darkness. The sentry, who was pacing to and fro before the campfire, halted and peered into the night. As he peered, he uttered the plaintive note of a zebra calling to its mate. A voice from the darkness said, "'In gonyama, gonyama!' "'In vubu!' replied the sentry argumentatively. "'Yabo, yabo!' "'In vubu!' An indistinct figure moved forward. "'Who goes there?' "'A friend!' Advance, friend, and give the countersign. Remember Mafe King, and death to Injuns. Pass, friend. All's well. The figure walked on into the firelight. The sentry started, then saluted and stood to attention. On his face was a worshipping look of admiration and awe, such as some young soldier of the Grande Armée might have worn on seeing Napoleon. For the newcomer was Clarence Chugwater. "'Your name?' said Clarence, eyeing the sturdy young warrior. "'Private William Buggins, sir. "'You watch well, Private Buggins. "'England has need of such as you.' He pinched the young scout's ear tolerantly. The sentry flushed with pleasure. "'My orders have been carried out,' said Clarence. "'Yes, sir. The patrols are all here. "'Enumerate them. "'The chinchilla kittens, the bongos, the zebras, the iguanodons— the Welsh rabbits, the snapping turtles, and a half-patrol of the thirty-third London gazikas, sir. Clarence nodded. "'Tis well,' he said. "'What are they doing?' "'Some of them are acting a scout's play, sir. Some are doing cone exercises. One or two are practicing deep breathing, and the rest are dancing an old English Morris dance.' Clarence nodded. "'They could not be better employed. Inform them that I have arrived and would address them.' The sentry saluted, standing in an attitude of deep thought, with his feet apart, his hands clasped behind him, and his chin sunk upon his breast. Clarence made a singularly impressive picture. He had left his Essex home three weeks before, on the expiration of his ten days' holiday, to return to his post of junior sub-reporter on the staff of a leading London evening paper. It was really only at night now that he got any time to himself. During the day his time was his papers, and he was compelled to spend the weary hours reading off results of races and other sporting items on the tape machine. It was only at six p.m. that he could begin to devote himself to the service of his country. The scouts had assembled now, and were standing keen and alert, ready to do Clarence's bidding. Clarence returned their salute moodily. "'Scoutmaster Wagstaff,' he said. The scoutmaster, the leader of the troop formed by the various patrols, stepped forward. "'Let the war-dance commence.' Clarence watched the evolutions absently, 
His heart was ill-attuned to the dances, but the thing had to be done, so it was as well to get it over. When the last movement had been completed, he raised his hand. "'Men,' he said, in his clear penetrating alto, "'although you have not the same facilities as myself for hearing the latest news, you are all by this time doubtless aware that this England of ours lies neath the proud foot of a conqueror. It is for us to save her.' cheers and a voice in vubu i would call on you here and now to seize your hockey sticks and rush upon the invader were it not alas that such an action would merely result in your destruction at present the invader is too strong we must wait and something tells me that we shall not have to wait long applause jealousy is beginning to spring up between the russians and the germans it will be our task to aggravate this feeling. With our perfect organization, this should be easy. Sooner or later this smoldering jealousy is going to burst into flame. Any day now, he proceeded, warming as he spoke, there may be the dickens of a dust-up between these johnnies. And then we got em where the hair's short. See what I mean, you chaps? It's like this. Any moment they may start scrapping and chaw each other up and then we'll simply sail in and knock what's left endways. A shout of applause went up from the assembled scouts. "'What I am anxious to impress upon you men,' concluded Clarence, in more measured tones, "'is that our hour approaches. England looks to us, and it is for us to see that she does not look in vain. Sedulously feeding the growing flame of animosity between the component parts of the invading horde, we may contrive to bring about that actual disruption. Till that day, see to it that you prepare yourselves for war. Men, I have finished. What the chief scout means, said Scoutmaster Wagstaff, is no rotting about and all that sort of rot. Jolly well keep yourself fit, and then, when the time comes, we'll give these Russian and German blighters about the biggest hiding they've ever heard of. Follow the idea? Very well, then. "'Mind you don't go mucking up the show.' "'In Ganyama! Ganyama!' shouted the new, thoroughly roused troops. "'In Vubu! Yabo! Yabo! In Vubu!' The voice of young England, of young England alert and at its post. End of Part 2 Chapter 1